How does one find forgiveness before a holy God? How does one stand in the presence of the Almighty? This is not a Christian question, though it sounds like one. It's a question that is applicable to anyone of any religion at any time throughout history. Try asking someone this question, no matter who they are or where they're from. How does one find forgiveness before a holy God? How does one stand in the presence of God Almighty? Oh, you can choose not to believe that God is holy, but if you accept the premise of the question that God is indeed holy, you are forced to deal with the answer. You are forced to engage in the scenario. You see, everyone, even without Scripture, realizes beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are a sinner. And that if there is a God and He is holy, there is a problem. Everyone, everyone without exception knows that they cannot stand in their estate in the presence of a holy God. Justice must be satisfied, for if he is indeed holy, he is in fact just. And justice must be satisfied in order for forgiveness to be extended. Someone has to pay, or he is not just. I'll get kicked off of YouTube for this. It'll be fine. But this is exactly why Allah is not holy. He never deals with sin. He is like an emotional Greek god from the Pantheon in Athens. He arbitrarily punishes some and gives others a pass. He is no better than man. He is emotional. No, to be holy, to be just, in fact, to be righteous, one must not be a respecter of persons. So how can one who is unholy stand in the presence of the most holy? Well, the prophet Isaiah knew what we all know intrinsically. Let me read to you from chapter 6 of the prophet's book. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew what we all know, whether Christian or pagan, that if there is a God and he is holy, we cannot 
stand before him. Woe is me would be all of our sentiments. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knew what we all know, to stand before a holy God in an unholy estate is to die. It's to die. Because of God's very nature, justice must be satisfied. He cannot be in the presence of sin, and death would be immediate. Unless, of course, that justice is satisfied by someone else. Let me read to you again from Isaiah chapter 6, the very next verse. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Your iniquity is removed, and your sin is forgiven. Now, how did that happen? Where did that coal come from? Was this forgiveness from the law of Moses? Was this coal from a Levitical altar? No. Remember, this is the temple in heaven. Hebrews 8 tells us that the law of Moses was, was merely a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. No, his sin was forgiven because justice was served. You see, Isaiah's sins had been placed on the future shed blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah was able to stand in his presence because Christ did what Levitical priests could never do. He satisfied the justice of a holy God, and mercy flowed from the cross. And that's what we will look at today. You see, there was a need for a change. The law could not forgive. The law could not bring us into the presence of God. And neither could the priests intercede for us effectively. And the law and the priesthood were inextricably linked, and they were useless for salvation. No, there needed to be a change. There needed to be a change in effective priesthood, and that's what we'll look at today. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we ask you one more time, specifically that you would, you would give us an understanding the book of Hebrews can be difficult to understand. But if we're honest with ourselves, it is because it will not reveal itself to a lazy eye or a lazy ear. And so sharpen us this morning. Quicken us. Give us understanding. Give us illumination by the power of your Spirit. May I get out of the way of this text and may it, may it shower us with understanding. May it strengthen our faith. May it give us resolve to do your bidding as ambassadors for Christ. And may it strengthen us for the times ahead. 
In the same way this preacher calls these Hebrew Christians in this small Hebrew church to draw near and hold fast, may we do the same. But may it be out of an abundance of worship. May it be out of gratitude for what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. For what the law could not do, God did. Make it real to us this morning. Help us to realize the reality of what has already been done. It is in His name we ask this with great confidence. Amen. Well, as we were out of it last week, let me spend just a moment recapping. A few weeks ago, we heard our preacher begin to talk about this shadowy figure, Melchizedek, this priest king who was king of righteousness and king of Salem. Salem, what would become the seat of the Israeli Israelite kingdom, Jerusalem. He was a priest and a king, but, but it was years before the law was instituted. It was not from the tribe of Aaron. And the preacher is making this connection that in the same way our Messiah is a priest, but he is not a Levitical priest. He is not from Aaron's lineage, and he is not under the law. But he is a priest, a king, yes, together according to the order of Melchizedek. And then right when he begins getting into this, in chapter 5, he takes a quick break and he starts to address the congregation because they're not listening. And he exhorts them and he says, I've got a whole lot to tell you about this. This is important stuff. This will help you for the times ahead, but you're, you're sluggish of hearing. You're willfully lazy. You should be on solid food, but you're still on milk. You can't handle what I'm about to tell you, so, so listen up. They weren't new believers, but they had become complacent because of persecution. They had willfully and metaphorically put their spiritual fingers into their spiritual ears and said, I, I don't want to really listen to this anymore because I keep hearing about this persecution going on around me. And if I listen, then I'm held accountable, and if I'm held accountable, I have to do something about it. So he exhorts them strongly, and then he warns them severely that this drifting has a destination. And that destination is apostasy. Finally, he encourages them, and he says, but I don't think I'm talking about you, and I don't think it's too late because I've seen both past and present fruit, and I'm encouraged that you will draw near, that you will come close to the throne of grace. And I want to encourage you to diligently imitate the faithful. Imitate the faithful men of the past who have received the promises and stayed the course until the end. He explained that God's promises are a sure anchor for the soul. And we use that illustration that, uh, that was kind of brought about from Kent Hughes, where when Christ ascended into heaven, he took with him this, this anchor, this anchor that was attached to the church. And when he got to the throne room, he, he circled it around the throne and fastened it tight. And it is Christ that holds the church fast 
through the fiercest of storms. He is the one that ensures that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are saved for eternity, but that eternity is not here yet. And we are to stay the course. We are to persevere. The faith that he gives us at salvation is the faith that will persevere through us to the end. And we rest in the finished work of Christ. And, watch this, in the daily interceding work of Christ in the throne room. And then he starts back up with Melchizedek again in chapter 7. And it's almost like this preacher who, after he's kind of beat him up a little bit, he's like the good coach, and he goes, but you can handle it. And you will be able to understand, because I believe that God is at work in you. So let me start up again and tell you about Jesus, the priest king, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's where we are today. This is going to be a subject for the next two weeks. It covers verses 11 through 28. You might want to kind of mark that off. We're going to cover it in, in two Sundays. And he uses a rhetorical device to let us know that these fit together. Look at verse 11. It says, now if perfection, circle perfection, was through the Levitical priesthood. Now look down at verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made what? Perfect. He uses the same word, talking about two different things, but it's an inclusio. Hang with me, I'm about to go deep. I'm going to talk about this Melchizedek. I'm going to talk about how your Messiah, the one that you're thinking about leaving, is in fact a priest king, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what does all this talk of priesthood, Melchizedek, and Jesus, what does that have to do with us as modern-day Christians? I mean, you're probably thinking, well, like, hey, pastor, why don't we just, can we just jump into chapter 11, the Hall of Faith? I mean, that's what most everyone else does. It's, it's exciting, it, it, it's relevant, there's some great stories. I mean, what, why get bogged down with all this? Well, we could do that. But all Scripture is inspired by God, right? And we would be missing out on a beautiful gem here. One that would be easily overlooked and yet is vastly needed for the times ahead. So I, I want you to put on your thinking caps with me and let's, let's go deep for the next few minutes. And let's see if the Lord doesn't equip us with tools for the times ahead. The title of the sermon is A New High Priest in Town. And our timeless truth is... The church needs to understand that Christ's priesthood is effective because of two things. Because it actually saves and it actually sanctifies. Our two points are this. Number one, a need for a change because the law couldn't save. And number two, there's a need for a change because the priest couldn't sanctify. Let's look at the first one. Listen to the preacher set the stage in verse 11 with a rhetorical question. Verse 11, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek 
and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. Now, perfection there means literally completion or to reach a goal. It's not talking about, you know, uh, everything being without any corruption, without any sin. That's, that's a different word. This means to reach a goal. So now, if the goal could have been brought out through the Levitical priesthood, there would not have been a need for another priesthood to arise. The goal then is to restore a right relationship. Kiddos, what are we learning in catechism? When Adam sinned, what? <laughs> well, Eve sinned too, that's good. <laughs> we'll leave that in the recording. Uh, we fell all. When Adam sinned, we fell all. All of us, mankind fell. Because of our Adamic fall, because of our nature, and because of our own volitional sin, we could not stand in the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am ruined. And yet, the goal is to restore that relationship. God could have been done with us, right? The Creator could have said, well, forget my creation. They committed treason. They rebelled against me. Why would I want to continue? They shook their fist at me and said, I will go my own way. We, like Satan, said, I will be like the Most High. And yet God, being rich in His mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, chose to move towards us. And even more than that, chose to restore this relationship that was broken. So the goal then is to restore a right relationship with God. Kent Hughes describes perfection as access to the presence of God. So what would the goal be? That we could stand before God. That we could have a relationship with Him. The problem was that neither the law nor the Levitical priesthood could ever bridge that gap. It could not bring us into a right standing with God. Now, it wasn't the law's fault. The law of God is good. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament is Psalm 119. How many times does King David cry out, Oh, how I what? Love thy law. I love thy law. Is David saying, I love thy regulations? Is he saying that? No. He's saying, I love the window into the character of God. You see, the law of Moses tells us what God loves and what he hates. It's, it's an expression. It's a picture. It's a portrait of who God is. In the Torah, there were 613 laws. 248 positive, 365 negative, and all of them describe what God values. And so David could exclaim, I love thy law. I love learning about the greatness of God, the holiness of God. And yet the law could not help us attain or maintain any sort of holiness where we could have that relationship. And so we were left with this great chasm. We know this to be true because even the imagery in the law shows us this separation. Only the high priest could have access to God in the Holy of Holies. And then how many times a year? Once a year. And only after he offered a sacrifice for himself first. Only the high priest could breach this three and a half inch thick 
woven curtain that separated God and His presence from the rest of the world. Sacrifices with the blood of bulls and goats had to be repeated over and over, year after year. And everyone knew that they would not save. It could cover sin as a shadow of what was to come, but it could never wash away our sin. As much as the law was a window into God's holiness, it also became a mirror of our own depravity. You see, the very window that that showed us this is perfection of a holy God stared back at us and showed us our own depravity, our own sin. Augustine said the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and we become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for the help of grace. Romans 3.20, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And the law became this this neon sign. You know? And it's like, it's not working. Here's the way to the cross. This is the way to the cross. Therefore, the law, Galatians 3.24, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the law, as great as it was, and through no fault of its own, but through our fault, could not bring us into the presence of God. Thus Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined. Translation, I'm going to die. And he would have. So there was a need for a change. But God didn't change his mind. It was a change of plans that was planned in eternity past. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through the Lord Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And so we start to see this unfolding of the prophecy. From the very beginning, right after the fall, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We have the first prophecy of a Savior who was to come. And during the law, we see the hope and the promise of change. We all quote Jeremiah 31, but hearing it in context, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In the very next chapter in the book of Hebrews, the preacher says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So we need something. We need a new law. We need a new priest. Because we need to be in the presence of God and not die. That is, of course, unless we fabricate a new religion in which God is not holy. And God is a respecter of persons. That's what's so great about the Bible. And just a side note here, the guy who discipled me said it this way. We know the Bible is true because if it was written by men, we would never say these things about ourselves. We would never say these things about God. It's got to be divine. Because it talks about our own depravity and our need for a Savior. So watch how in verse 12 the preacher explains this change. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there needs to be, there takes, a place, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evidence that our Lord was descendant from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So imagine now you are probably in Rome, maybe somewhere in modern-day Italy. This is the first century. You're a Jewish believer. We're all part of the same small church. You, you've heard about persecution going on. No one in your congregation has suffered to the point of death, but, but you have lost property. Your family's turned against you. All the people you used to sell to and do business with on your block who went to the same synagogue, they've rejected you. And you feel more and more pressure. You know it's coming. Oh, you've, you've repented of your sin and you've placed your faith in Jesus the Messiah. But now this preacher is explaining something else to you. He's not just the Messiah, which means king. He's a priest. That is radical to you. You grew up understanding the Levitical priesthood. You know the first five books of the Bible by heart. You know beyond the shadow of a doubt that unless you are from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron, you cannot serve as a priest. And the preacher's saying here, hey, Jesus, who you think, who you're thinking about leaving, is not just your Messiah. He is your high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is radical thinking. To say a priest that could be from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi was unthinkable. But he says it's necessary. Why? Because the law could not bring us into relationship with the Holy God. Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Now, why is this so important to this little Hebrew congregation? Because the law could not accomplish bringing us into relationship with the Holy God. If they therefore decide to go back to the law, what are they walking away from? 
the only means of salvation, the only means of being able to stand before a holy God and not die an eternal death. This is not just deep theology here. This is incredibly practical. Especially in this day and age when we see people, Christians, over and over again walking away from the faith. Oh, I'm not, I'm not worried about you guys going back to Judaism. But I'm always worried about professing Christians functionally rejecting their Messiah. And he's explaining here that if they turn back, they will turn back and embrace something that will not save. They will let go of the very anchor which will bring them into the presence of God safely without judgment. Look down at verse 18. He sums it there. He says, For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Remember, perfect means to attain a goal. What is the goal? Relationship with God. Being able to stand before a holy God. The law could not do it. And it's almost as if this preacher is saying, hey, guys, you think persecution is tough? It's tough. Don't get me wrong. But it's not nearly as tough as standing before a holy God without Jesus Christ having paid the price. What's the worst they can do to you in persecution? Kill you? Kill the body? They can't kill the soul. Do you really want to trade eternal life for temporal comfort? Let me explain what I mean. If they walk away from Jesus Christ and walk away from the faith, the persecution will stop immediately. Immediately. They will be received back into their community, back into the synagogue. Their businesses will just take a boost. Their kids will be back on the team. Everyone will be happy. The persecution will cease immediately. You'll be back in a normal, enjoyable, cosmopolitan life in the first century Roman Empire. But at what cost? Christ says in Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, you've heard me talk lately about James Coates, the Canadian pastor who went against the COVID restrictions and said, look, uh, when it comes to obeying God or men, we're going to obey God and we're going to worship. And he spent a month in prison. He was, he was just released, I think, a week ago. But what you may not know, hardly made the news, is that four days ago, the government built a fence around the church and seized his property. This is not in Eastern Europe. It's not in a Soviet bloc state. This is in the Western Hemisphere. This is in Canada. They have lost their church building. Now, no government can destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But I'll promise you that's discouraging. This pastor can cause 
the persecution to cease immediately if he simply goes back to obeying everything they want and rejecting Christ. But are you really willing to quit standing for Jesus now knowing that you will not be able to stand before him in the future? I think this text has a far more relevance than we realize. Well, there's another change as well. Look at the second one. The need for a change because the priest couldn't sanctify. Verse 15. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of the law of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And this preacher reaches back into that Davidic psalm, Psalm 110, and he pulls this thing out again like a sledgehammer. And he's basically saying, I know you didn't realize it, because the only thing you knew of a priesthood was connected to the law before, and it was a Levitical priesthood, but this was prophesied. And the greatest king of Israel talked about it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he was talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who's not just a king, as amazing as that is, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but he is the high priest, the mediator between God and man, the one who is able to do what the law could not and to bring you into the presence of a holy God and not die. Now, there is no question that what the Jews had experienced under the Levitical priesthood provided some sense of a connection with God. I mean, they, they could see him, right? They could see him wearing his, his linen and his ephod and the stones and the breastplate and, and they could see the, the hat and it says holiness unto the Lord and they could see all this going on. And they, they knew that he was doing something to stand in the gap between them and God. And you may have even had an affection for him in some sense, kind of like you would the, the head of state, but it was so far and there was so much distance that that was about all. I mean, it's not like you could show up at this guy's door in the middle of the night. Uh, hey, high priest Yaakov, could we talk a little bit because the Philistines are kind of persecuting me? And, and, and I'm also really concerned that this drought's not going to end. I'm having a hard time trusting God. How about a little biblical counseling? You think that's going to happen? No. The whole system of the law and the sacrifices, F.F. Bruce describes, was associated to keep men at a distance from God rather than to bring them near. The, the only sense you had was that you could see it and that it symbolized, but it wasn't reality because it wasn't accomplishing anything. But on the other hand, David prophesies here of a priest who would be priest forever. Not like this high priest Yaakov who lasts 30 years and you, you find out that he died one day. But he talks about a priest here that has the power, what, what, what does it say? Of an indestructible life. Death could not keep him in the grave. He is not a priest that serves for a term and that's it. 
who you don't know. But He is one that conquered death and daily stands ministering in the Holy of Holies for His church. And He is one that is daily interceding. When we pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, it is immediate access. Why? Because He did what the law could not do. The law could not save. Jesus can. The law could not sanctify. Jesus is sanctifying us daily. Look down at verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently, therefore He is also able to save forever those who draw near through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I can't get beyond that verse. Just another side note here. You're telling me that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who spoke the world into existence who Luther said that when he was the baby in the manger was still holding the universe in check, that he lives to make intercession for us daily? Why? Why? We can't even get our heads wrapped around that agapao, that godlike love that does what is best for another regardless of what it cost him, and it cost him his life. And yet He lives. He didn't just die for us. He lives to make intercession for us. So why on God's green earth would these Jewish Christians consider going back? And don't you feel like getting on your high horse right now and saying, yeah, they're just like the, the guys in the wilderness, you know, always complaining. God should have just destroyed them all. It's easy to do that, even with these guys. Why are you wasting ink on this little church? They're probably going to punt the faith anyway. And then as you start reading in between the lines, you realize this is us. Anytime you're drifting spiritually, we are these Hebrew Christians. You say, well, I'm not thinking about going back to Judaism. No. But if you're like me, you've drifted before. And sometimes that drift goes from days to weeks to months. And we are tempted, at least functionally, to let that drift continue. You see, there's always, there's always a push and a pull. You ever heard it described that way? We, we've mentioned the, the, the push of persecution. The push of persecution is the pain. We hate pain. We want it to go away. We protest pain. We get in a bad mood. So there's, there, there's a push away from our Lord when it comes to persecution. But guess what? There's also a pull. There, there's, there's the, I, I, I want my spiritual pacifier. I want something that looks familiar, even if it doesn't actually accomplish anything like a pacifier. I kind of miss seeing my high priest. I miss the feast days. I miss the calendars. I, 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 I miss feeling spiritual. And if I can see it and it feels good and the push goes away, the persecution, 
well, then sometimes I'd rather have the pacifier. You think this doesn't happen in modern day churches? Let's be honest. Why are so many leaving healthy evangelical churches to go back to a traditional high church, dead Protestant liberalism or a dead traditional Roman Catholicism? Because I want to feel and touch and, and make myself think that I'm being spiritual and I don't want it to cost me anything. And that's exactly what's going on here. This is not rocket science. You don't have to read 35 commentaries to figure out what's going on here with this wanting to go back to Judaism. They want to go back to something that makes them feel good, like a high church, traditional, doing things that make me feel, feel spiritual without the pain of persecution. The problem is, is that there is no hope. Look at verse 18. For on one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law could not bring us into the presence of God. On the other hand, though, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. There is a new commandment. There is a new high priest in town that accomplishes what the law could not, that accomplishes what the Aaronic priest could not, and it is to have us stand before God, washed in the blood of the Lamb. So I want you to think about what happened that Passover Friday in A.D. 33. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in that moment, Jesus, as the forerunner, walked through, dragging the church with him, and went into the throne room of God. He not only provided and effected salvation, he set up camp and started to effect our daily sanctification, ministering to us in ways that the high priest could never do, seeing us through persecution. Why would we want to go back to this which makes us feel good and is nothing but just dead traditionalism when we actually have the opportunity to draw near to our great priest king who is in the throne room. We stand forgiven before a holy God and have access into the holy of holies through the son. What no high priest could ever do. Do you think this might make a difference when you're in the middle, when you're in the cooker of trials and persecution? When you're losing stuff, your property, your reputation, he actually achieved the goal of us being able to stand before a holy God. And with this new priesthood, we are given the twin tools of knowing our life is secure in him and knowing that our daily battle to stay faithful is also secure in him. Salvation, sanctification. The key to all this is don't drift. Draw near. Don't go back. Don't trim your sails. 
because we are held fast by our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen.